And with us on a phone line from New York is Dr. Jeffrey A. Lieberman, who is professor and chairman of psychiatry at Columbia University, also the director of the New York State Psychiatric Institute, former president of the American Psychiatric Association. Dr. Lieberman, good afternoon. Hi, glad to be with you, Milt. My basic question is, you're fine, how am I? <laughs> well, That's the tagline, isn't it, about two yeah, psychiatrists meeting each other? That's right. You're okay, and I'm okay. Yeah. I am merely a psychologist, and not even a clinical one, but a social psychologist. But I've been quite fascinated uh, following the fortunes of uh, psychiatry and psychiatrists over my rather long academic career. And particularly, I uh, can testify that I watched um, the full flowering of psychoanalysis as a systematic theory of mentality or a systematic theory of personality, its full flowering as a method of psychotherapy and its gradual and very welcome decline. And that's what you deal with uh, in the earlier portion of your book, Shrinks. Uh, do, do you also welcome the decline of psychoanalysis? And for that matter, why did it decline as it so precipitously did rather over the last two decades, I would say? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I welcome the decline, not in a sense of, you know, any kind of sadistic way or schadenfreude, but um, simply because of the fact that um, it had come to dominate the, the field of psychiatry uh, disproportionately. Um, you know, when psychoanalytic theory was invented by Freud, uh, there was really no theoretical understanding of what uh, uh, motivated human behavior and particularly misbehavior that uh, occurred in the context of mental illness. And, and, and Freud's theory uh, was intellectually very appealing and also had some uh, explanatory value, albeit uh, uh, theoretical and, and never confirmed. Um, and so the fact that it grew to be the dominant theory and psychiatry sort of uh, was cast in the role, if, if all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And uh, it became the answer to everything when really it had limited uh, applicability. And the um, hammer, so, the hammer, in fact, was not a hammer. It was a couch. <laughs> you've got a couch yeah, pictured on the front of your book. Explain, turning to the furniture aspect of modern psychiatry, the significance of the couch. Well, the couch basically uh, reflected uh, part of the talking cure. When, when Freud developed his theory, uh, the theory that needed to be able to be applied in order to be therapeutically effective. So his theory was then implemented in the context of the talking cure or psychoanalytic or psychodynamically oriented psychotherapy. And uh, the methods of uh, this technique were that um, the doctor tried to remain kind of a, a neutral, ambiguous, uh, ill-defined person. Um, and the patient, or the analysand, uh, was to be put into a kind of a comfortable position, preferably recumbent on a couch or a lounge, or at least in a, in a, in a comfortable uh, uh, chair, um, and uh, free associate or talk about anything they wanted to, including reporting their dreams. Um, so the, the the popular image of psychiatry was of a psychiatrist, a.k.a. shrink, uh, impassively sitting there listening to, you know, a person on the couch, you know, just to count whatever came to their mind. Um, unfortunately, uh, that was really um, 
not reflective of what psychiatry needed to be doing, which was to, uh, in addition to maybe helping the worried well or people that had problems living, taking care of people with severe mental illnesses, but they were a long way from the couch in offices on Park Avenue or or, or uh, wherever. Uh, they were really clo- uh, cloistered away in, in mental institutions or asylums. Psychoanalysts are still in practice. I guess there must be fewer of them now than there were 20 years ago, but I really don't know the numbers. But what are they charging for an hour now in a Park Avenue uh, psychoanalytic office? Well, it's uh, anywhere from like uh, 200 to as high as uh, 700 an hour. My God. Um, oh my God, just... it's, it, I mean, I think, I think uh, traditional psychoanalysis uh, has become... A kind of a niche, a niche therapy. It's it's really for people who are, you know, very curious about themselves and want to try and understand themselves and maybe alleviate some difficulties they've been having. Are very psychologically minded and introspective, and also, um, you know, given to uh, being able to articulate their feelings and, importantly, have enough money to pay for it. Of course, it was all guided supposedly by a theory. Uh, originally propounded by Freud and further elaborated by Fenichel, uh, earlier on by Jung, and then by so many others, um, and uh, uh, Ernest Jones in England, uh, etc., etc. So there is a body of thought which is psychoanalytic theory. I'm not quite sure where they stand these days, but still, the primacy of sexual motivation is crucial. The existence of the unconscious is crucial. The unconscious leaking out in ways that generates symptoms is crucial, uh, it was crucial initially, are all of those still central ideas? They are. They, they still have some relevance and even to some degree some validity. But I think it's important to understand, even though um, Freud is clearly the most famous and important psychiatrist in history and, and, and his you know, theory and talking cure is almost become synonymous of psychiatry in, in the public's mind and in popular culture, um, it's really only one part and now a very small part of the field of psychiatry and, and psychology for that matter. Um, you know, the, the inventors of psychology were Wundt, Wilhelm Wundt uh, in the late you know, 19th century, um, William James, uh, Skinner, uh, Pavlov, um, and, and since then, there have been a number of other cognitive psychology uh, theories that have been developed. And, and psychiatry has taken a, a very different turn, particularly after World War II, with the introduction of psychopharmacology and then um, neuroimaging, genetics, neuroscience, molecular biology. So um, psychoanalytic theory remains sort of one part of that. But, you know, the, the fundamental elements that you mentioned, um, like the unconscious uh, defense mechanisms, um, uh, the idea of transference, these still inform uh, the practice of psychotherapy and actually, to some degree, uh, have found like a, a, a new new birth in, in cognitive neuroscience, where uh, cognitive neuroscience in the context of studying you know, the circuitry and the functions of the brain um, uh, understand that there is an equivalent to the unconscious. Uh, many things happen outside of awareness. Um, so it's, I think it's important not to let uh, you know psychiatry's sort of psychoanalytic legacy kind of overshadow the field of psychiatry and psychology as a whole. Well, I think generally, as I observe <clears throat> from my own psychiatric and psychological friends, uh, psychoanalysis in the Freudian 
and post-Freudian model is held pretty much in a dis- disdain or condescension rather than um, by uh, such practitioners, even those who say that they are involved in doing cognitive, psycho- uh, cognitive therapy. Well, that's true. I mean, I think the factionalism is unfortunate. Uh, uh, there shouldn't be this kind of, uh, um, you know, ideological uh, you know, tensions or, or, or feuds going on. Um, but, uh, you know, there are to some degree, um, and uh, it's, it's, it's really regrettable and unnecessary. Look, you know, the, the, the psychoanalytic theory has, a, I think, a, a significant role in terms of the history of psychiatry and psychology. It does, despite, uh, you know, the, um, the things that we now know, which are pretty preposterous and, and, and uh, invalid, uh, it still did have some uh, uh, useful and valid elements to it, which have uh, been incorporated into the more contemporary forms of treatment. Um, so I think, you know, we need to try and, uh, we, we, we can't be ideologues, and, and, and there are still a small uh, core of individuals who are ardent proponents uh, and are trying to defend the, um, you know, the reputation of the master, so to speak. But, you know, this should be science, not religion. And science requires, uh, as has been often pointed out, uh, quoting Karl Popper, a, uh, uh, among other things, a philosopher of science, science requires <clears throat> that the body of theory uh, can have drawn from it propositions which are testable, and which, are in, which are in fact, quote, falsifiable. If you can't prove that some particular derived idea uh, from a particular science is wrong, then you don't have a science because there's no possibility of testing the truth or falsity of that body of knowledge. And that has been one very basic critique of psychoanalytic theory. Is it a relevant critique for other modes of um, psychological psychiatric theory? Not for the most part, uh, but I think you you, you, you really uh, hit the nail on the head, um, so to speak. Um, I think you know, Freud's biggest mistake was he was a control freak. And he uh, would not allow his his he wouldn't wouldn't allow his disciples to really vary from uh, you know his theory or technique, and he never allowed it to be subject to scientific verification. It had to be accepted uh, on faith, and, um, and he had a, a bil- he had a built-in con man trick, which was just wonderfully uh, uh, successful. Uh, if uh, an interpretation is offered to a patient or for that matter, if it's offered to another psychiatric colleague about a particular patient, if that patient or that other psychiatrist uh, says, no, no, that doesn't make sense, or no, that doesn't seem right, or that doesn't seem real, Freud's response in essence was, this is, you're now showing, quote, resistance, which uh, by resisting the idea, you are demonstrating that it hits home and it is deeply true, but not yet uh, uh, capable of being acknowledged by you. Uh, That means that Everything that is disconfirmed is thereby confirmed. Yes, no, exactly. It, it uh, you know, basically accuses of being resistant, or worse yet, you know, having some kind of neurotic conflict, which uh, prevented you from, you know, understanding uh, what was being taught or seeing the light. Um, you know, it's it's sort of like, uh, you know, if you don't follow a religion or a political ideology, you know, you're a, you're a heretic. Was psychoanalysis, and we're about to dismiss it <clears throat> and get on to modern psychiatry, but was psychoanalysis um, in its heyday um, essentially an American discipline, though to be sure, founded by an Austrian and developed by uh, his European colleagues, or 
did it flourish as well in Austria, in Germany, uh, in Europe generally, even on into the Soviet Union? To what degree was it a universal discipline for a while? Well, it, it began in, in Europe and in, in the Germanic-speaking countries, and uh, it initially um, spread and uh, gained uh, following and credibility uh, in Europe. Um, I mean, it didn't sort of uh, spread like wildfire, but it, it, it no doubt was the sort of leading uh, theory informing psychiatry uh, of the late 19th century. Um, the reason why psychiatry in the United States be, you know, just really became enthralled by it um, was kind of an accident of history. Uh, and it had to do with World War II and the rise of Nazism. Uh, Freud, of course, was Jewish, even though he was you know, very much of an atheist. Uh, and um, his inner circle and coterie of followers were substantially uh, Jewish people, uh, doctors or, or, or practitioners. And, um, you know, when uh, Hitler came to power, uh, many of them fled uh, to the United States. And when they came to the United States, they were regarded by uh, the medical field and, and even academic psychiatry departments as kind of, um, uh, you know, people who really had uh, true knowledge and were give, accorded uh, the greatest prestige. You know, they had learned at the feet of the master. So they were given... Uh, prominent positions and great respect, and systematically, over a period of several decades, um, the analysts, beginning with the uh, European emigres, uh, gained all of the positions of power within American psychiatry. They became the chairs of the major departments of medical schools. They gained control over the American Psychiatric Association, and um, even I can remember this during my medical school and residency training, which was in the 1970s, there was a lot of pressure that was applied to um, students that were going into psychiatry to kind of uh, embrace psychoanalytic theory by, one, you know, learning the curriculum, but two, undergoing an analysis and, and then sort of accepting this as the, the mode of clinical practice. So, um, you know, it's a situation where it uh, began in Europe just like any other sort of uh, new theory or body of knowledge would. But uh, in America, because of just some accidents of history and a lack of competing uh, sources of, of, uh, of new knowledge through research, uh, it became more dominant than any other place in the world. Um, I spoke a moment ago about falsification as a standard for <clears throat> judging whether a science uh, is really a science. Falsification, in another sense, is simply lying. And uh, people like Frederick Cruz and a fellow named Estabrook, I believe, in England and various others, have documented that Freud, whatever else he was, was a hell of a liar, that there's much falsity uh, and uh, essentially fiction in his case histories uh, and, uh, for that matter, much manipulative uh, conning in... Uh, some of his psychoanalytic politics, particularly as he ran the international uh, organization of psychoanalysts. I want to talk with you about that just a bit. I'm still persisting, I fear, for just a moment. And then I want to get to modern psychiatry. First, we pause for this. And we return to Jeffrey Lieberman, drawing from, but <clears throat> of course we can't do full justice, to his very richly informative book, Shrinks, The Untold Story of Psychiatry. Uh, by Jeffrey A. Lieberman, M.D. Um, I was just quickly raising the specter 
of Freud as um, uh, a source of mendaciousness. That is to say, according to Frederick Cruz and various others who've written about it and have investigated it, he lied a lot, not only in the making of his case histories, but also in many of the uh, controversial claims about uh, therapeutic success where no therapeutic success had been achieved. What, what do you know and what do you say about that? Well, Milton, as I'm sure you know, uh, one of the, uh, the sort of ine- inevitable uh, uh, realities of life is that you, you learn that all, of, uh, you know, all your idols have clay feet. And so, um, you know, Freud uh, certainly had his foibles. Um, I mean, he, he became addicted to cocaine. Uh, he was, you know, kind of very um, misogynistic. Um, you know, there were uh, a lot of things, him as a person, you, know, you could say were uh, not entirely admirable, but overall, Freud did more good than, than, than bad. And I think the, the big problem isn't so much, you know, what, um, you know, what mistakes or, or misdeeds, you know, he may have committed. It's that the field of medicine and particularly psychiatric medicine did not hold him and his uh, work accountable. Um, you know, the Popperian, Karl Popper's, you know, admonition, you know, that everything has to be uh, you know, verifiable or, or stand up to the test of being disproved. And, you know, uh, medicine and, and, and science just didn't do that. And it was the only field of medicine that didn't. I mean, this, this you know, once, once medicine entered the modern age, um, which it really did in, in the uh, 20th century, and uh, science with an increasing number of different types of um, uh, scientific disciplines uh, was applied to the development of new knowledge, the study of disease, the development of treatments. Um, somehow, it was, uh, psychiatry and, and mental illness and psychoanalytic theory was, was not sort of included in this and, and required to, uh, to be uh, subject to this process. And, and it didn't really change until after World War II. You asked before about you know, whether the same kind of acceptance on faith and, uh, is, is, occurs with other forms of psychotherapy, and the answer is no. When science began to be integrated into uh, the field of psychiatry in a uh, pervasive way, um, the therapies that emerged, such as cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal therapy, dialectic uh, 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 behavioral therapy, um, motivational interview, all these things were subject to testing and scientific verification. So I think the real problem is, is that uh, somehow we gave Freud a pass. And something else that was <coughs> subject to testing and verification, and about which you treat in considerable detail in uh, the book, Shrinks, is, of course, essentially psychotropic drugs and their um, use for uh, severe disturbances of one kind or another. Uh, let us come to that. Um, where did the the drug revolution within psychiatry began? It began uh, after World War II and really in the 1950s. You know, uh, there's a saying that it's better to be lucky than to be smart, and psychiatry just was lucky. Um, when, when it really was on the verge of descending to its lowest level and really risking uh, being uh, dismantled as a profession, um, serendipity stepped in, and uh, beginning with a French surgeon uh, who was trying to develop a, a drug to treat surgical shock, um, the first medication to treat psychotic disorders like schizophrenia ever in human history was accidentally developed. And 
when it was tested in the early 1950s and found to almost have a miraculous effect on individuals who were you know, living in, in, in a mental asylum and were floridly insane, uh, that it really brought them to being coherent and able to function almost normally. What, what um, drug was that? This is a drug called chlorpromazine, marketed as Thorazine. And within five years, Milt, this new drug that was the prototype of what are now called antipsychotic drugs, um, within five years, almost 50 million prescriptions worldwide were written uh, for, uh, for people who otherwise would have spent the rest of their lives in mental institutions. Now, as you noted a moment ago, and of course you're absolutely right, the ultimate test of any therapeutic procedure is demonstration through research, usually uh, uh, research in which you've got a blind assignment to uh, experimental conditions versus control conditions and so on. Uh, the ultimate demonstration through such research that changes are wrought, changes for the better by the treatment uh, modality. What do we have? What, what were the first studies along those lines as regards chlorpromazine? Well, uh, initially they were just given to patients and uh, uh, the results were noted. But then uh, when more systematic uh, studies needed to be done to verify this and also to convince um, the various regulatory agencies like the FDA, uh, a standard, what are called randomized clinical trials were done, which is you take a group of uh, individuals who have a given diagnosis, schizophrenia in this case, and they're actively symptomatic with hallucinations, delusions, thought disorganization, bizarre behavior. And you uh, randomly, by flipping a coin or something along those lines, assign them to either receive the active treatment or promazine or a placebo, which is like a sugar pill, uh, inactive. And uh, the treatment is given blindly. In other words, the pills look exactly the same, and neither the doctor nor the uh, person who's receiving it knows which is which, and they're treated for a period of several weeks and evaluated uh, on a regular basis. And at the end of you know the period of time in the study, four weeks, six weeks, um, the study is stopped, and uh, after enough people have been studied, the blind is broken and the uh, results are examined to determine whether the treatment worked. And when this was done, uh, it was overwhelmingly clear that the medication was very effective compared to the uh, sugar pill. So what is underway there is a, a new subfield within psychiatry that might be called psychopharmacology. How f- exactly. Where and how has psychopharmacology advanced since the first work with schizophrenics getting chlorpromazine? Well, uh, soon after that, um, a similar process occasioned the discovery of the first antidepressant medication, imipramine, uh, which was marketed as Tofranil. And then uh, some shortly after that, uh, maybe five years after that, the first mood-stabilizing drug for treating manic depressive illness, or what we now call bipolar disorder, was developed. Uh, That was lithium. And um, uh, subsequently, other medications, such as medications for anxiety, uh, medications for treating ADHD, uh, were developed. And and so by by the uh, mid-1970s, you had um, treatments for most of the major psychiatric illnesses, the mood disorders, depression and bipolar disorder, the psychotic disorders, schizophrenia. Uh, anxiety disorders, um, 
and uh, and attentional uh, disorders. The the only thing that you didn't have treatments for were uh, conditions like dementia uh, or like autism. Um, so what it meant that uh, the lives of millions, tens of millions of people, could now be changed because before this, even though you know psychiatrists are, uh, maintain that psychoanalytic therapy or other treatments might be helpful to some degree, the reality was is uh, we had no really effective treatments for these conditions. You mentioned and all of a sudden. You mentioned dementia. That's a very common uh, uh, accompaniment of what is called senility or of Alzheimer's disease as a precursor and so on. How does one define dementia? What are the signs of dementia? Dementia refers to an impairment of a person's cognitive functions, and cognitive functions refers to memory, um, uh, the ability to uh, problem-solve, the ability to uh, perform analytic thinking, the ability to try and process information in a logical and coherent way. So if you think about, you know, in the course of the day, you have to do a lot of things, make judgments about where you want to go, what you want to do, remember, you know, who you're supposed to meet, where you put your car keys, uh, what time you're supposed to have dinner. Um, these things are eroded when a person becomes demented. And there's various causes of dementia, uh, the most uh, famous of which being uh, something called Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. Now, it's interesting, Milt, because uh, Alzheimer. Um, this disease is named after uh, a, a German psychiatrist named Alois Alzheimer. And he, back in the 19th century, was really trying to find the cause of schizophrenia. And he was doing so by looking at the brains of uh, deceased individuals, post-mortem examinations. And he was looking in the brains of people who had schizophrenia, then it was called dementia precox, and he couldn't find anything. But in some individuals, he found these clumps of proteins and this atrophy, which became the uh, signature features of what we now call uh, Alzheimer's disease. We're about to pause necessarily for some commercials, but let me just follow up quickly with something that I'm sure many of our listeners would like to know. Uh, is there a psychopharmaceutical uh, approach to dementia uh, and senile dementia generally? Is there any way of bringing it under control or reversing it with drugs? No. Not right now. Uh, there's two ways of treating uh, dementia. Um, one is called uh, symptom improving, which kind of temporarily uh, 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 ameliorates the symptoms, like it, it improves your memory temporarily. And then there's disease modifying, which halts the progression of the illness. And right now, there's no effective disease modifying medication. Yeah. Um, so there's uh, an important task that still needs to be addressed. Uh, just as we must quickly address these words. And we return to Jeffrey Lieberman, MD, who is the author of the new book, Shrinks, The Untold Story of Psychiatry. Um, and it is uh, delightful, if that's the right word. It's certainly extremely informative reading. Uh, and I've just recently got a copy of it, and I'm enjoying it considerably. Um, uh, Dr. Lieberman, um, and a query from a listener that's come to us via email a um, question for your guest. Does he believe that doctors are too quick to prescribe psychotropics? It seems as if nearly everyone is searching for an answer to why life is not as kind as they had hoped. An easy answer is that they are different, that something is wrong, rather than life is simply a difficult enterprise for all. What do you think? I, I think there is some uh, truth to the fact that uh, you know 
people uh, are you know, looking for a pill to solve their problems or make them feel uh, uh, like they, you know, better than they they do or like they uh, they, they think they should. Um, and and there may be some you know too much alacrity by which doctors you know jump to prescribing a medication. But I think there's a couple of caveats. Um, one is is that um, when it comes to psychotropic drugs, uh, given what we know about the epidemiology of mental illnesses, and by mental illnesses, you no, know, I'm not referring to what I would call the worried well or problems in living. I'm talking about discrete illnesses that are defined within the the, um, the diagnostic nomenclature. Um, there's many, many more people who genuinely need and would benefit from psychotropic drugs who are not getting them than there are individuals who may not necessarily warrant them but have been prescribed them. So um, what may sort of impel uh, people to, per, to sort of seek medication when they may not need it or doctors to prescribe it uh, without, you know, uh, trying uh, a non medical or pharmaceutical treatments first? Um, well, one is, is we have a lot of sort of direct-to-consumer advertising, which plants ideas in people's minds, and they go to their doctor saying, I read about this drug, you know, what about this? Can this help me? Um, and also doctors now with uh, uh, our difficulties with our health care financing system and uh, the pressure to sort of meet managed care company guidelines and uh, all of the cost containment uh, pressures. Um, don't have the time to talk to people nearly as much as they used to. And so it's easier uh, to write a prescription than it is to take you know, 15 to 30 minutes to try and figure out you know, why an individual situation with their job or with their spouse or uh, with their children may be, may be producing difficulties for them. So um, uh, I, I do think that there is some uh, merit to that concern, but you know, the bigger concern in my way of thinking is that because of stigma and lack of access to treatment, far um, too many people who, who really would benefit from care don't get it. Uh, my Some of my synapses aren't firing properly, and I can't remember the name that I'm after, but you will know it. A psychiatrist who, perhaps some 10 years ago, uh, discovered Prozac and had so much fun with it, and then wrote a book suggesting essentially that everybody should take Prozac all the time. That really was an answer to life's problems. Who am I remembering? Are you talking about Peter Kramer? I guess that was it. Prozac? Yeah. What was it? It was called Listening to Prozac. Listening to Prozac, exactly. The author's name was Peter Kramer, who's a, 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 a... Actually, he's a good friend and colleague as a psychiatrist. But wasn't he, over, wasn't he over-prescribing in that book? And since he seemed to be suggesting, everybody take it, it's good for you. Well, there's been a number. There was Prozac Nation was written also about a woman who, uh, you know, was taking Prozac. I, I think what it, what it was this uh, uh, is that um, the first and uh, the first psychotropic drugs that were developed, uh, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, were highly effective medications, but they had significant side effects associated with them. So nobody who really didn't need it by virtue of having severe symptoms, whether it was psychosis, depression, mania. Um, would want to take these medicines because you know they you know had side effects of causing constipation and dry mouth and making your head feel kind of foggy, cottony. Um, but then 
Prozac was developed by the Eli Lilly Company, and the scientist was a guy named Ray Fuller who, who discovered it. And it was the first uh, you know, popular what was called serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So it was a refinement on the original antidepressant medications that had the same therapeutic effects but had minimal to no side effects. Um, or, and so it became something that people said, well, I'm not sure if I'm really that depressed or not, but maybe I'll take it because, you know, there's really no harm in doing it. It's like taking vitamins. Um, so it became uh, something people thought of as a panacea, uh, but uh, clearly it wasn't because it's not going to help you if you aren't, you know, genuinely medically depressed. And uh, uh, it's never good to take a pharmacologic substance if you don't need to because there are some potential for, for adverse effects. What do we understand? What does your science understand about uh, the mediating process which makes psychotropic drugs uh, work effectively for those who are suffering from <clears throat> whatever the relevant disease is? Um, do we know what happens biochemically to produce the change? Yes, we do. And I think this ties into uh, what we were originally talking about regarding Freud and psychoanalytic theory, Milk, because um, when Freud introduced his theory, there was no understanding of what caused mental illness, and there was no treatment for it. Um, and he replaced, uh, he filled that gap with a metaphysical explanation, not of what happens in the brain to cause somebody to be depressed or psychotic or anxious, but uh, a, a description of how the mind worked and how their psychosexual experience you know, produced this uh, 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 mental condition. Um, and so all the treatment was geared towards altering these uh, metaphysical constructs. Through, through the talking yeah. cure, basically. Through the talking cure. Yeah. But what we, what we know, and this is essentially the difference between psychiatry and psychology, is that um, mental disorders, and all behavior for that matter, but mental uh, disorders particularly, are, are reducible uh, to what mechanism or what process in the brain that is supposed to mediate those functions is producing these symptoms. So if we're talking about psychosis, we're talking about the area of the brain that mediates um, perception and uh, interpretation of stimuli uh, and uh, um, uh, uh, emotional regulation. If we're talking about anxiety, we're talking about you know, what uh, uh, is mediating your level of sort of um, uh, surveillance of the environment and perception of fear and, and, and emotional reaction to this. So um, when we use an antidepressant or an anxiolytic, uh, what we're doing is, is we're trying to correct a dysregulation that has occurred in that area of the brain by acting on a specific neurochemical system, which is the neurotransmitter that is uh, uh, mediating the activity between the cells in that area of the brain. Um, so an antidepressant drug is basically trying to reset uh, the balance that normally exists in circuits that regulate mood. And it just so happens that those, those cells are, uh, to a significant degree, sort of controlled by serotonin, hence the, uh, the fact that antidepressants work by inhibiting the activity of serotonin. Are all of the... <laughs> what we used to call neuroses, are all of them somehow approachable through drugs or is there still room for a simple psychotherapy without any drug use at all? 
there definitely is a use uh, for uh, non-medication uh, related therapies and psychotherapy. Uh, but um, what we call, we used to call neuroses are, are not mental illnesses. Um, the neuroses, what was commonly thought of as a, as a neurosis previously is now really somebody who's experiencing some uh, psychological difficulty with aspects of their life, you know, can't get along with their boss, having trouble uh, developing uh, uh, good emotional relationships, is anxious about public speaking and things of that sort. Um, and many of these, most of these are, are, are not, you know, should not be treated with medications, at least initially, and are amenable to one of uh, a number of kinds of psychotherapy. Um, medication should be reserved for uh, treatment of either defined illnesses, which is symptoms that are out of proportion to a person's circumstances, are distressing or disabling and persist for a long time. Um, and um, uh, uh, these you know, generally require some form of medication to treat, uh, particularly if they're moderately or, or very severe. Uh, we are about to pause for the usual reasons. Um, uh, we've got an obsessive compulsive need to do some commercials every so often. Uh, and when we come back, I'd love to hear something about the shape of your profession these days, and for that matter, the inner politics of psychiatry these days. We return dire directly to uh, the author of Shrinks, The Untold Story of Psychiatry, Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman, after this. Uh, a few quick words to our listeners before we return to our guest. Uh, the first word is simply, if you want to be in touch via email, uh, my email at the station, and all of this has been only recently established since we are only in our second week with this program. The email is milt at 1590wcgo.com. Again, milt at 1590wcgo.com. Uh, if you want to get your hands on the literally hundreds of classic uh, programs that we did at another station, but in the same general format that we're doing now and that we did with world leaders, indeed with psychiatrists on occasion, and with all kinds of scientists and uh, all kinds of historians and uh, political activists, etc., etc., uh, you may simply go to <coughs> another website, miltrosenberg.com, to get to the, uh, the Extension 720 archive. That's what it really is, and that's where you find it, at miltrosenberg.com. And um, with that, we'll go directly back to Jeffrey Lieberman for the uh, 10 minutes or so that we've got left. <clears throat> uh, so how does your, does your profession flourish these days? For a while, it was uh, an area in which bright medical students were advised, uh, don't bother with that, become instead uh, a, um, a neurologist at least, or perhaps an obstetrician. Uh, how, um, who, who roots into psychiatry these days? Well, you're absolutely right, Milt. Uh, psychiatry uh, uh, had been what I refer to as the stepchild of medicine and, or in another way, uh, the Rodney Dangerfield of medicine. It <laughs> didn't get any respect. Yeah. Um, maybe because it didn't deserve it, but uh, things have changed enormously, enormously. Um, you know, the way I view it, uh, and this was what I tried to convey in my book by trying to describe you know, the, the evolution of the field, um, psychiatry was kind of the runt of the litter when it first uh, uh, was born as a medical specialty and was a late bloomer. But uh, really, 
since the 1950s, and particularly in the context of the scientific uh, revolution in, in biomedical research, uh, the knowledge that we have uh, acquired about the brain, how it functions, particularly in terms of um, the higher order mental functions and behavior, is enormous. And the array of treatments that are, are scientifically tested and uh, verified as effective, ranging from uh, psychotherapies to uh, um, pharmacologic uh, medications to uh, neuromodulatory treatments, beginning with electroconvulsive therapy, but now we have uh, um, uh, repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation. We have direct current uh, uh, stimulation, and for severe refractory cases, we have deep brain stimulation. Um, these therapies and this knowledge have made it a game changer such that uh, in contrast to what existed uh, a half century ago, people who have, have mental illnesses can expect to leave pretty much normal lives if they get effective treatment. You know, just like people who have chronic illnesses like hypertension or diabetes uh, uh, um, are able to do. The problem is, is that the old attitudes towards psychiatry and towards mental illness still persist, the stigma, the lack of awareness, and the thing that I think is the most um, uh, tragic of all is that there's a virulent anti-psychiatry movement that still tries to beat the flames of, of prejudice and, and ignorance. That is particularly and, uh, pushed by people. That's particularly pushed by a, something that calls itself Scientology, and curiously enough, they do a brand of psychotherapy, which is an imitation of psychoanalytic therapy. Exactly. I mean, uh, uh, some of the anti-psychiatrists have ideological grudges against um, psychiatry. You know, they believe that there's no such thing as mental illness, that these are people who are acting in unusual ways or simply exercising their freedom to behave as they want to. Well, you had, you, had psychiatrists, you had psychiatrists who argued that. R.D. Lang was one of them, surely. And Tom Zoss right. was another. Exactly. These are, you know, what I call self-hating psychiatrists yes. that... Um, that, that uh, created, uh, you know, Tom Zaz wrote The Myth of Mental Illness. And then he teamed up with Ron L. Ron Hubbard of Scientology to start the first formal organization against psychiatry. But Scientology's motivation is different than Tom Zaz and R.D. Lang. Um, they were idea ideologues that didn't believe in mental illness. Um, uh, Scientology is basically an economic argument. They're competing for market share. And uh, if psychiatry is treating people for so-called mental illnesses, that's less people that they can inveigle into their uh, you know, own philosophy for auditing and all the other stuff they do. Uh, you know, the, uh, I remember a study. I don't remember who did it. It was done down at the manager clinic many years ago about who turns out to be a good psychiatrist, who turns out to merely be a journeyman, who isn't good at it at all. They were working with, I suppose, psychiatric residents uh, down uh, uh, at managers. Uh, and the finding, if I remember correctly, was that the best performers were people whose own lives were rather emotionally empty and thus had a kind of a, to use a psychiatric or analytic term, were rather voyeuristically involved in looking at the more colorful lives of their patients. Does that make any sense to you? No. <laughs> no, no. Do you, no remember the, I, I, do you remember that study? I, yes, I do. But you know the, the 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 you know the Menninger Clinic. So the the Menninger family were like 
the you know Freud was the most famous. Yes. The, the Menninger family were like the American Freuds. They were the royal family of American psychiatry. Quite so. And they did they did they did a lot of good of trying to promote uh, destigmatization and effective treatment. But they were wholly oriented towards psychoanalytic theory, and uh, it really did not. Uh, move the fields forward, and, and all the efforts to do studies or ostensible studies that determine who's the best doctor um, to by using you know, who, who would have best results using this approach uh, have really no no scientific validity. Uh, a basic consumer oriented question: um, When do you think about maybe going to a psychiatrist, whether for yourself or some close relatives? What uh, what's psychiatrically relevant uh, uh, before you knock on the door? Well, it's, it's similar as to what would prompt you to go see uh, any doctor for an ailment if you have an upset stomach, if you're having shortness of breath, if you have a pain in your knee. Um, if you, when you have symptoms that are beginning to be distressing, like you know, this is not something that uh, is, if you're feeling low or if you're feeling anxious or if you're thinking and your concentration is impaired and there's no clear reason for it, if it's uh, happening to a severe enough level so that you notice it and it's interfering with your ability to function, and if it's persisting as opposed to going away in an hour or a day or a couple of days, then err on the side of caution. If you go to see a doctor, and you can begin with your primary care doctor. You don't have to go see a psychiatrist right off the bat. But if it is something that's related to mental function and emotions, um, you uh, may end up or you may want to go see a psychiatrist. And the worst they can do is tell you, well, you know, uh, you, you, you know you're, you're going through a, a transition in your life or it's nothing to worry about. It'll pass. Um, and, you know, you've just spent the time and the money doing it. But I've seen so many cases where people just tried to, you know, keep a stiff upper lip. They ignored it. They didn't really understand, you know, what was happening or believe in, you know, the fact that one could be psychologically vulnerable. And then something bad happens, and and uh, not infrequently it turns out to be something self-destructive and even occasionally suicide. Or in the case of individuals who become who are developing psychotic symptoms, um, they will use drugs recreationally, and this will produce a florid psychosis. And, and we've seen now in, in the media uh, some of these terrible tragedies where there's this mass violence committed by young uh, males mostly who have mental illnesses that have been untreated that kill innocent victims. Is that demonstrably the case with regard to some of those particular horror stories? Uh, unfortunately, it is. I mean, if you look at, if you, if you take for the past five years so if you look at violence crime overall yeah. in the United States, uh, less than 4% of it is uh, uh, perpetrated by people who have a mental illness. But if you look at these civilian massacres, yeah. or if you look at intra-family violence, like fratricide or, or, or parricide or, or, or infanticide, um, the number, the proportion of those crimes committed by individuals with mental illness goes up to between 10 and 20%. And if you take these you know, civilian massacres like Adam Lanza in Connecticut and Jared Loeffner in Arizona uh, or James um, Holmes in, in Colorado, uh, if you look at these sensationalistic kind of things, um, it's uh, over half. Now, some of these violent crimes are committed by ideologic zealots like 
Timothy McVeigh when he blew up the federal building in mm-hmm, Oklahoma, yes. or, or, or Major Hassan when he killed these uh, people at Fort Hood. You know, they were ideological zealots. But the other half, or the, uh, a large proportion, are, are untreated people with severe mental illness. Well, sir, I thank you for joining us. It's been a fascinating conversation for me, and I think for our listeners. Our guest has been Jeffrey Laberman, M.D., who is the author of Shrinks, the Untold History of Psychiatry. That's published, by the way, by Little Brown. And again, warm thanks for lending us your expertise this uh, whole hour.